Have you ever thought about how controversial the love of God is? How scandalous the grace of God is? Soren Kierkegaard, who was one of the favorite folks that I've had in my life to read after, he remarked after he observed Christians for you know, most of his short life, he looked at Christians and this is basically one of his takeaways. He said, you know, when it's easy to be a Christian, no one knows what it means. And when it's difficult to be a Christian, no one asks what it means. And I think what he saw is what many of us have seen if we pay attention long enough to the Christian world that we seem to be more concerned with being a Christian than we are with actually being Christian. And there is a difference in someone saying, I am a Christian and someone deciding to be intentional to live as a Christian. And I think that in our generation at this time, in the place that we are in culture, I think that all of us who say that we are followers of Jesus, I think it would be wise of us to begin to ask, what does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to be a Christian in this culture? How can I be a Christian in the current cultural climate that I find myself a part of? What does it mean to be a Christian today? What does it mean to speak like a Christian, to think like a Christian, to have the worldview as a Christian? What does it look like to be a Christian? In other words, if Jesus were here today, based on what we know about Jesus, what we learn from Jesus in the New Testament, how would Jesus handle our current cultural climate? What would Jesus be talking about? What wouldn't Jesus be talking about? How would Jesus be talking? What would his tone be? What would his tenor be? What would be the things that Jesus wouldn't go on record about? And what are the things that Jesus would go on record about? I think that you should be concerned with being a Christian, but I also think that all of us should begin to be concerned with being Christian. And we should begin to wrestle with the question, what does it mean to be Christian in this world that we're currently living in because this week we have had a tragic reminder, a circus-like reminder, a 24-7 reminder of exactly what we talked about last week, this brand new normal that we find ourselves a part of. And this is the new normal that we said we're a part of. That today we're not only in disagreement with one another, but we seem to dislike one another simply because we disagree with one another. That this is the place that we find ourselves. We disagree with one another, but in addition to that, we've gone a step further and we actually dislike one another because we disagree with one another. We have come to the place where not only do we think we're right, but we think we're better than the ones that we think are wrong. And that's why all this week, if you've been paying attention in the media, if you've been listening on radio, if you've been reading about it in the newspaper or blogs, online, ever how you get your news, that's why all week we've heard people speaking to make points, not making a difference. All week long, we've heard monologue and we've not heard a lot of dialogue. All week long, we've heard people speaking to be understood, not listening to understand. And it seems like on no matter what side you find yourself of what's going on in our world today, whatever the issue is, whichever party it is, whatever discussion we're having, whatever side that we're on, it seems like the intolerance on both sides is growing. It seems like the intolerance of your side Whatever your side is, is growing. And it seems like the intolerance of the other side, whichever side that may be, is growing. But here's something to think about, and I think we should all think about this. If you're intolerant of people who you think are intolerant, 
you are being intolerant. Intolerance of intolerance is still, wait for it, intolerance. And I think that that's where we are. And that's the reason, if you've been paying attention, it's been going on for quite some time, but this week it was brought to the surface in a brand new way. We're so busy talking at each other, over each other, about each other, down to each other. Nothing is getting better. There's no progress that comes from that. More so than ever before, we need to learn how to sit down and talk to one another with one another. More than ever before, we need to learn how to pull out a chair, sit down at a table and sit with people and learn to listen to people and learn to talk to people and learn to talk with people. More than we ever have before, we need to learn how to have a conversation, to learn how to sit at a table with people who are different from us who disagree with us about really important issues. Because I think to ask the question in our culture, what does it mean to be Christian? What does it mean to follow Jesus? What does it look like to be a follower of Christ? I think it really does involve sitting at a table with people different from us who disagree with us because that's what Jesus did. In a polarized culture in the first century, that's what Jesus did. That's how Jesus opted to engage people many, many times. It was sitting with them, across the table from, alongside of, talking with, listening to. Jesus found the table a great place to get to know other people. He loved dinner parties. He loved the table. He loved the common ground that it offered. He loved the shared experience. He loved coming to new understandings. He loved listening to people and getting to know who they are, where they come from, and why they are the way they are. It was the place where if nowhere else they could find common ground, food, and drink, and company with one another. Now, we talked about last week that Jesus did this so much. Jesus did this so often that the religious people of his day, they actually didn't like it. It bothered them, it offended them. And so they gave Jesus a reputation based on how much he enjoyed having dinner parties with people. Jesus spoke about this reputation. Jesus was fully aware of what religious people were saying behind his back. He knew what people were saying throughout the community. And here's what Jesus said when he called it out. He said, the son of man came eating and drinking and you, you religious people, you say, here is a glutton and a drunkard, someone who eats too much and drinks too much. This is what you say about me. This is how you misrepresent me. This is how you mischaracterize me. A friend of tax collectors and sinners. And Jesus would own the latter. Jesus would say, absolutely, count me in. But Jesus never felt the obligation or the responsibility to define the parts of his reputation that were mischaracterized or misrepresented. Jesus understood that the fact that he loved to sit at the table and the fact of who he liked to share the table with, it was a point of controversy. And listen to this, don't miss this, because I want you to fall in love with Jesus. I want you to see Jesus. I want you to know the real Jesus. I don't want you to know some fabricated, sanctified, romanticized version of Jesus that you were presented in church and Sunday school, you know, a long time ago. I want you to see Jesus as he was. He was okay with controversy. He was okay with controversy. He was okay with rampant speculation about who he was, what he believed, what he stood for, where he came down on issues. Jesus was okay with all of that. And at Jesus' table, now think about this. Jesus' table was loved by sinners who loved to sin. 
but hated by people of faith who supposedly loved God and hated sin. Jesus' table was polarizing in and of itself because Jesus would gather with people who were not welcomed at the temple, who were not wanted at the temple, who were not welcomed or wanted by the faith and the religion of their day, and Jesus said, come sit with me. And if we're gonna ask the question, what does it mean to be Christian in this culture? How do we engage? How do we make a difference? How can we follow in the footsteps of the one that we call Savior and Lord? We have to understand how Jesus leveraged the table, how he leveraged conversation. Jesus used the table as a place to invite diversity. Everybody say diversity. Jesus used the table as a place to invite diversity. And that's what bothered people so much. He tore down the walls that people had built around the table. And those who were unwelcomed, he said, you're welcome. You're unclean, you're welcome. You're unrighteous, you're welcome. You're irreligious, you're welcome. If you're a tax collector, if you're a sinner, if you're a prostitute, if you're a woman, if you're a Gentile, you're welcome. He broke protocols, he broke tradition, he broke social norms. He broke religious law, and he didn't care what people thought about it. People invited people to the table who didn't believe like him and who didn't behave like him. And guess what? The people who didn't believe like Jesus nor behave like Jesus, they loved to be with Jesus, and Jesus loved to be with them. And the religious people were drove crazy because of it. They couldn't get it, they couldn't understand it. They looked at Jesus and here's what they said. You don't take a strong enough stand against sin. That's what they thought. Perhaps that's what some of you think about Christians in our day or some pastors in our day or maybe about me in our day or our church or another church or certain groups. They're just not strong enough against sin. They don't need love, they need truth. Too much love, that's not healthy. Too much love, that's not good. And that's what they said about Jesus. That's the very thing they said about Jesus because his acceptance, it borderlined affirmation. And he was okay when people couldn't tell the difference. His empathy resembled endorsement and he was okay with people not being clear about that. In the absence of him condemning their sin at the table, they assumed that he must condone their sin and he did not feel the need to go on record about it. He, he did not feel the need to say, time out, listen, I brought you here, but I want you to know where I stand on this. See, we feel the need for that. If we say something good about another group of people, but in the same breath, we also feel obligated to say why we disagree with the said people that we're talking about. We feel the need to appear strong. We, we fail the need to appear clear when Jesus didn't always feel that need. And here's what else we need to understand about the table and Jesus. Because if we're gonna ask the question, and you may not ask it, but if you ask it, it's a dangerous question. What does it mean to be Christian in this culture, right now, in this place? Jesus embraced people before people embraced him. Jesus believed in people before people believed in him. Jesus accepted people before people accepted him. And Jesus loved people before people loved him. And if you don't get that, 
If you don't see that, if you're not open to that, you are going to go in a way that is not the way of Jesus. You're not going to engage culture. You're not going to make a difference. You'll make a point. You'll stand up. You'll be heard. You'll be clear. But you will not go the way of Jesus. Because Jesus was willing to do all of those things. He was willing to go first before anybody else made a reciprocal step in his direction. They love to hang out with him. And here's my question. Do the marginalized, do the discriminated against, do the hated, do the maligned and the belittled and the insulted of our day, do they love to be with us as much as they love to be with him? And if not, we need to begin to ask the question, what does it mean to be Christian, to be Christian is to be like Jesus and to be like Jesus is to find diversity that he welcomed and a diversity that welcomed him as well. So Jesus used the table to invite diversity, but not only that, Jesus used the table as a place to elevate dignity. And that's really what I wanna to talk to you about today. I wanna to talk to you about this little word, but it is a big word, dignity. Everybody say dignity. Jesus used the table as a place to elevate the dignity of people. Jesus stepped into this world and he began to reshape the theology of dignity. Because if you're gonna bring people to your table and you're gonna have a conversation, here's what you need to know. Having a conversation with people doesn't begin with talking. It begins with thinking and it begins with seeing and it begins with feeling. Having a conversation with people the way that Jesus had a conversation with people begins with how you think about people, it begins with how you see people, and it begins with how you feel about people. Because if you think about people, see people, feel people in a way that was different than how Jesus did, you may bring people to your table, but it's going to go wrong, and it's going to go wrong fast, and it's going to go wrong in a big, big way. So having a conversation with people actually begins with how we see people, how we think about them how we feel about them, what we actually believe about the dignity of people because Jesus elevated the dignity of people. How did he do it? He touched the untouchable. He included the excluded. He invited the disinvited. He recognized the forgotten. He wanted the unwanted. He loved the unloved. Jesus invited those who had been discriminated against by their culture, by their faith, by their family, by their friends. And he brought them to the table and he looked them in the eye and he said, you may have been discriminated against by friends, by family, by even faith, but here's what I'm gonna do with you. I'm gonna treat you in equality. I'm gonna treat you as an equal. I am gonna treat you with dignity because you have dignity before God and you have dignity before people. Jesus brought sinners to the table and he did not treat them like sinners. He treated them like people. He elevated the dignity of people because he saw the intrinsic, inherent value of every single person. That's what it means to be Jesus. Jesus teaches us in the theology of dignity, the theology of how we see one another. Jesus teaches us, if we pay attention, along with the rest of scriptures, that people's value, a person's value, isn't established by their label, by their classification, by culture. It isn't even established by what they've done or what they're doing or what they haven't done, by how they behave or by what they believe. Jesus said, your value as a person isn't dependent on what you believe or how you behave. 
If we go the way of Jesus, if we decide to be Christian, here's what it means. That we see every human being as a person of the utmost value because they are. To which you should ask, why? It's because they bear the image of God. And this is 101. This is going back to the beginning. This is how Jesus saw people, how he thought about people, how he felt about people. He understood that every person was made in the image of God. From the very beginning, the book of Genesis introduces us to this idea. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female. He created them. And here's what the scriptures teach. This is what Jesus modeled, that every person we see whether at our table, away from our table. Every person we see, every person we hear, every person we come into contact with, every person we speak to, and every person we speak about, they are made in the image of God. The thumbprint, the reflection of God is in that person. They are the creation and they bear the reflection of the creator. And this is how every person has been made. And when sin came into the world, it marred, it distorted the image of God, but the image of God is still upon every person. Matter of fact, you can read on a few chapters later in Genesis, in Genesis chapter nine, verse six. And there the scriptures say that because man and woman is made in the image of God, every life has value. Every drop of blood has value. And that's why Christians are pro-life. That's why Christians are champions of life. That's why Christians are supposed to be champions of people because people are made in the image of God from the moment that they are conceived to the moment they take their last breath. We see a person, an individual who was formed and fashioned a reflection of, a resemblance of God. Now I'm not a genius, that's why I love to quote geniuses. C.S. Lewis, one of my favorite people to read after, C.S. Lewis said, and I'm going to paraphrase him a little bit here, C.S. Lewis said that any person you sit at your table with, they are never a mere mortal. Every person you ever talk to, they will never be an ordinary person. Every person you ever share a table with, every person that you come into contact with, they are immortal Every person lives forever somewhere. That every human being, they will live forever and ever. Cultures are mortal. Art is mortal. Civilization, politics, nations, those will all fade away because they have mortality. But human beings are immortal. And the point being that everybody matters. If they matter to God because they bear his image, they should matter to us. If they are loved by God, they should be loved by us. Every person we look at, if we see them and think about them and feel about them the way that Jesus did, we will begin to see the resemblance and the reflection of God in them. So the question then begins to be, if we claim to love God, how can we not love those made in the image of God? And that's where dignity comes in. And that's what Jesus teaches us about dignity. Dignity says who you are matters. Dignity says what you think 
matters. Dignity says your opinion matters to me. Your experience, your hurts, your brokenness, your pain, your betrayal, your story, it matters to me. How you think and why you think it, it matters to me. You matter to me because you matter to God and because you matter to God, you matter to me. Because you are more than the sum total of your belief and your behavior. I am more than the sum total of my beliefs and my behavior. And so if you call yourself a follower of Jesus, saying, I don't care about what you think, saying, I don't care about who you are, saying, I don't care what you've experienced, is never an option. To be Christian, to follow the way of Jesus, is to understand that all people are equal before God. Now, it was in the Constitution. They put it there, the preamble. All men created equal. They didn't fully mean it because they had to come back later and put an amendment to say, hey, what we really meant to say the first time around was this. And if you know anything about history, you already know what I'm talking about, but I don't have time to talk about it. But here, when you find this idea in the scripture about the equality of humanity, it's been the same since the very beginning. And here's what some of you need to know. You need to know that God does not love believers more than he loves unbelievers. Unbelievers are not less important to God than believers. Those who believe right are not more important than those who believe wrong. Those who behave right are not more important to God than those who behave wrong. They have dignity, that God loves us all equally. That God sees us all the same, so much so that he loved us the same that he sent his son into the world to die in our place, all of our places. And that's the dignity that we have value because we bear the image of God. Francis Schaeffer said this, he said, if man is not in the image of God, nothing then stands in the way of inhumanity. And it seems like today in our disagreements, we lose one another's humanity. We speak to one another in dehumanizing terms. And you can check me out about this. You may not think it's right, but you can check me out about it. And you may think I'm wrong up front, but if you'll go read about it, you'll find out that you're wrong and I'm right. But I'm just gonna go ahead and tell you that I'm right. If you read the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus taught that if you dehumanize a person by word, by attitude, by thought, by feeling or behavior, it is the same as murder. Woo! I didn't expect you to get up and shout right then. I really didn't. I, I, I wasn't expecting a big amen or an applause. Jesus said, anytime you dehumanize a person, it is sin. Through your attitude, through your rhetoric, through your thoughts, your feelings, your treatment of, dehumanizing another person is sin. Jesus' half-brother, James, whew, he came along and he said this about the matter. He said, with the tongue, as Christians, we like to praise our Lord and Father, and with it, we like to curse human beings who have made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth comes praise and cursings. And then he says, my brothers and sisters, read this last part with me. This should not be. He says, you can sing your songs, pray your prayers. You can speak as high of God as you want. But if you speak low of people, that should not be so. 
And so I told you this week, it's been, it's been something to behold. It's, it's, it really has been a circus, as many people have called it. I wrote down a few things that Christians said about other Christians this week from social media and from tweets and Facebook and newspaper articles and blogs. Here's what some Christians who are conservative, they're right-leaning Christians, this is what they said about Christians on the left. They're evil. Those Christians over there who are different than us and disagree with us, they're evil. They're godless. They say they have, they're godless. They wanna be communists. They're the devil themselves. They're fascists. They're baby killers. One Christian leader this week said, we no longer need nice Christian leaders. We need street fighters. Because after all, Jesus said, blessed are the street fighters for they shall inherit the kingdom of God. Here's what some Christians on the left said about Christians over there on the right. They're racist, they're sexist, they're defenders of sexual predators. They oppress women and children, they're bullies, they're hypocrites, and they only care about the sin of those outside of their party. James said, if you're gonna go the way of Jesus, if you're gonna be Christian, to bless God and curse a person, this should not be so. Listen, to insult the image bearer is to insult the image giver. If I walk up and hear you talking about my two sons, if I, if I walk up and hear you making a joke of my children, if I walk up and hearing you belittle, if I walk up and hear you making fun of, characterizing, stereotyping my children, <laughs> I'm telling you what, I don't care who your granny is, we're gonna have a problem. If you go a step further and actually mistreat my children, I don't care how nice you are to me. We're gonna have a problem. This is why Jesus looked at the religious people and said, hey, but go and learn what this means. I desire steadfast love, not sacrifice. Jesus wants us all to know that people, people that we sit across from, people that we sit with, different from us, disagree with us, they are sacred. They are made in the image of God. You could go stand in the holiest of holies on the Temple Mount, but it is no more sacred than the person that you're sitting alongside of. You can hold the most sacred book in your hand, but that book is not more sacred than the person created in the image of God. The religious people, they saw people wrong because they thought about people wrong and it led them to feel about people wrong. And we can either take our cues from Jesus or we can take our cues from religious people. We can take our cues from Old Testament prophets if we want to. We can take our cues from Christians of generations gone by that got it wrong. Or we can be a generation that says, what does it mean to be Christian? Not, do, not, does what, what, not, not what do I want it to mean. Not what best associates with my political ideas or my social desires. What does it mean to be Christian? What we believe about people shapes how we see people, how we feel about people and how we speak about people. That's where the conversation begins. 
before you ever bring them to the table, that's where the conversation begins. It begins with, are you going to extend and elevate dignity to every single person? Are you gonna believe that every person matters? What they think matters, their opinion matters, their view matters, their worldview matters, their perspective, their experience, their story, that it matters. This is what Jesus modeled over and over again. It says one day that when one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, a Pharisee, Jesus went to the Pharisee's house and he reclined at the table. So Jesus gets invited to go to a Pharisee's house and Jesus was an equal opportunity offender. Jesus went and hung out with tax collectors and sinners and Jesus went and hung out with Pharisees. Simon, we're not sure. Maybe he really was interested in Jesus. Maybe he's just there to gather intelligence about Jesus for his friends. But Simon is part of a group of people who think that Jesus loves too much and truths too little. That he eats too much and drinks too much. They soft on sin. He's not clear enough about his positions. He doesn't stand up and speak boldly enough. That's what they think about it. So Jesus gets invited. And so Jesus, because he's already taught concerning enemies, you're supposed to bless them and pray for them and love them. And so when an enemy, a perceived enemy, maybe an enemy, invites him to the table, he says, sure. I'll be your huckleberry. Come on, I'll, I'll be there. Right, some of you have no idea what I'm talking about. And that's tragic. That is tragic. But anyway. He says, I'll be there. I'm going to sit with you. I'm going to talk to you and we'll see where this goes. And here he is. He's a Pharisee. He guards his, his purity closely. Simon believes that he's clean. And if he gets around something unclean, he's going to become unclean. So while they're there, there's a courtyard out back because people would hang out in the courtyard and watch people have dinner. And, and when important people were in the house, they would listen to the conversations. That's the reason why Jesus, when he was at Matthew's house that we talked about last week, the Pharisees were watching the whole thing. They were watching it from out in the courtyard. So there's a group of people out there in the courtyard watching this dinner with Simon the Pharisee and Jesus and a whole bunch of other guests. And while this is going on, now I'm about to tell you, you've heard this story many, 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 many times, but I'm gonna tell you in a way it's gonna make you uncomfortable. You're gonna think about getting up and walking out, and if you do, that's okay, but I wish you wouldn't, because I need you to sit under the weight and the awkwardness and the uncomfortableness of what happened at that dinner party, because if you're gonna invite people to your house, if you're gonna bring people to your table, it has the chance of going very, very bad. It has the chance of being messy. It has the chance of being complicated. It has the chance of being emotional. It's gonna, have, it's gonna run the chance of some things happening that you're not really sure what to do about and how to handle. This is exactly what happened at this dinner party. So while they're having dinner, this is a woman in that town who lived a sinful life. Now, a lot of scholars say that she's a prostitute and she may very well have been a prostitute. We, we don't know, but everybody knew this woman was a sinner. But, but here, here's the great thing about what Luke does. He doesn't tell us what the sin is. And I love that because it doesn't matter. So pick your poison. Whatever sin bothers you the most, Whatever sin irritates you the most, gets under your skin the most, that you think is just the plague of humanity, that sending you know, the whole nation down the you know, sewer, whatever, whatever that sin is, just go ahead and grab onto it and go ahead and label, or label her that. But a lot of people say that she was a prostitute. We don't know. He doesn't tell us. This woman with a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, so she came there. The audacity. She came there with an alabaster bottle of perfume. Now, she knows the Pharisees and she most likely knows Simon and she knows that she's not welcome there and she's not wanted there by Simon. She's not welcome there and she's not wanted there because she's a sinner. But she also has heard and she also knows that Jesus is there and she has heard about Jesus that he is a friend to people like her. 
He is a friend to tax collectors and sinners. So she knows she's not going to be wanted or welcomed by Simon, but she is confident she's going to be wanted and welcomed by Jesus. And so she takes a chance. She takes a risk. And this is where it just gets weird, awkward, uncomfortable, risque, inappropriate, beyond PG-13. As she, this woman, stood behind Jesus at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. And then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. Now, we read that and it's like, it doesn't, what, okay, it sounds, sounds pretty nice. But when you go back into the culture of that day, when you dig into the text, when you dig into the culture, what you're gonna find out is that for everybody in the room at that table, Everything about what she's doing is wrong. Everything about what she's doing is outrageous. They reclined in those days at the table with the feet out. She's there at the feet of Jesus. This is inappropriate. This is not right. Everybody at the table knows that this should not be happening. And everybody at the table, in the room, in the courtyard, they're offended. From their perspective, this appeared to be erotic. This appeared to cross a line. This appeared to be, oh my goodness, this was scandalous. People are leaving the courtyard. They're going to their neighbor's house and Jesus knows what's happening. People are gonna misrepresent this. People are gonna mischaracterize this. This is gonna fuel speculation. People are gonna be talking about this. And here she is. She lets down her hair. New Testament scholars, most every single one of them agree that when she let down her hair, this was something that happened in the bedroom. This is where this happened. Women let their hair down in the bedroom. This is happening at dinner. Other New Testament scholars say to let her hair down was tantamount in our culture to being topless. Now, I just want you to think for a moment about being at a dinner party. And all of a sudden, somebody just walks in the back door and begins to massage the shoulders of somebody at the dinner party, half-dressed. Now think about it. Don't think about it too much. <laughs> now think about that for just a moment. Nobody knows what to do. Nobody knows what to say. There she is playing with Jesus' feet, crying and wiping his feet with oil. And this is strange and this is awkward. And this, this doesn't happen here. This was so offensive. This was so inappropriate. And there she is crying and we don't know why. We're not told why she's crying, but something's going on in her heart. And, and, and here's the uncomfortableness of it. The uncomfortableness of it is Jesus doesn't stop her. He knows what people are thinking about it. He knows how people are seeing this. He knows that it's fueling rumors and speculation. He could have said, oh honey, bless your heart. That's sweet, but this is not the time or place and I'm not the person, okay? Jesus could have said that. Jesus could have went on record like everybody wanted him to, to say, I agree with you. This is not right. I'm against this. I want everybody to know exactly where I stand. I am, I am not for what she's doing. He could have, 
He probably felt the pressure to do that. He could have had a shining moment for the Pharisees and in the, in the mind of the Pharisees by having a moment of being a champion of hard truth. Because that's what they thought she needed. One New Testament scholar said that his silence and passivity was both deafening and artful. He was okay with the tension and the mess and the awkwardness and the scandal of this moment because Jesus didn't see her the way that they saw her. And Jesus didn't think about her the way they thought about her and he didn't feel about her the way that they felt about her because he sees her with dignity and they do not. They're embarrassed, he isn't. They're scandalized, he isn't. And it says, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is and that she is a sinner. Simon doesn't see her. He only sees what she does, what she's doing. He only sees the inappropriateness of what she's doing and where she's doing it at. Jesus, however, in Simon's mind, was failing the test. He apparently is not a prophet because he would never, if he were a man of God, if he, if he believed what he said he believed, he'd never let that woman do that. Simon couldn't imagine, he couldn't fathom how anyone who loved God would allow a woman to do that. But Jesus was not worried about himself. Let me tell you who Jesus was worried about. Jesus was worried about her. Jesus answered Simon because Jesus hears the thoughts of men. Don't ever think anything about around Jesus that you don't want Jesus to know. Jesus answered him and said, Simon, I have something to tell you. Simon said, tell me, teacher. And so Jesus said, okay. Let me tell you about a banker, Simon. Simon, there was a banker. He had two people that owed him money. One owed him a little. Simon, the banker also had another fellow who owed him money, and he owed a lot of money. But here's what the banker did. The banker decided that he was going to forgive the debt of both people, the one who owed a little and the one who owed a lot. Simon, I have a question for you. And Simon's thinking, okay, okay, what's the question? So they're around the table, they're talking, discussing. He says, Simon, which one do you think loved the banker more? The one who was forgiven a little or the one who was forgiven a lot? And Simon, you know, it's pretty logical. So I think the one who probably was forgiven a lot, that's the one who probably loved the banker the most. And <laughs> Jesus said, Simon, you're so right. You don't want to be right, <laughs> but you're right. And then Jesus turned to the woman and said, Simon, do you see this woman? And he didn't. Not the way that Jesus did. And here's the point we're going to be introduced to. Our faith isn't measured by being right. Our faith is measured by how we treat those we think are wrong. Simon is exposing his own lack of faith, his own lack of love, his own lack of understanding for his own condition. He says, Simon, do you see her? I came into your house, Simon, and you did not give me any water for my feet. But she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't give me a kiss, but she has kissed my feet from the time I entered in. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured, poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, Simon, I tell you, her sins have been many, who are many, have been forgiven. As great as her great love has shown. And then he adds this, Jesus does. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. The irony is this. Simon is the host who wasn't really a host. The woman is the host who wasn't really supposed to be a guest. 
Simon mistreated Jesus. Simon didn't appreciate Jesus. He didn't treat Jesus with dignity. He didn't respect Jesus. Simon thought he was a little bitty sinner. And he thought she was a really big sinner. Some of you, you think of yourself as a little bitty sinner. And you look at the others like they're really big sinners. But Jesus said, let me tell you, there's no such thing as little bitty sinners and really big sinners. There's only sinners. And Simon, you don't even realize that you are the same as she is. You feel like you've only been forgiven a little. That's the reason you love little. The reason she loves a lot, she knows she's been forgiven a lot. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Religion called her a sinner. Jesus called her forgiven. So what can we learn from the story? We're either like Simon or we're like Jesus. What can we learn from the story? We can learn that when we deal with people who are different from us, disagree with us, how we deal with them, how we see them, how we treat them, how we feel exposes our heart. How we feel about people in sin exposes our heart. How we feel about people who are inappropriate, it exposes our heart. Whenever we sit down at a table with people, here's the point of the story, and this is where we're wrapping it up. Whenever we sit down at a table with people, we are all lawbreakers. We are all sinners in the need of the grace of God. We are all made in the image of God. And there's not really that much difference between us. If you get this right and I get this right, they'll talk about you. They'll talk about me, they already are. They'll talk about all of us. They'll say that you're soft, they'll say that you're weak, they'll say that you're not clear, they'll say a whole bunch of things about you that you're getting wrong. But if you decide to be Christian, that's a price you will have to be willing to pay. When we believe that everyone is created in the image of God, it requires us to show everyone the love of God. And love changes who you see. What you hear, ultimately, how you treat your neighbors, all of them. Jesus invited people to his table not to reform them, but to love them. And loving them transformed them. What does it mean to be Christian? It means going the way of Jesus. What does it mean to go the way of Jesus? It means to elevate the dignity of every person, even the ones you disagree with. The people that are different from you, you begin to care. You say, well, I can love them, but I don't have to like them. Shut up. <laughs> Shut up. Just be quiet and go home because you don't understand anything. You don't understand anything. What kind of parents tell us about their children? I love them, but I don't like them. 
How would you feel like God? How would you feel like God whispered in your ear, I love you, but I don't like you? Just be quiet. Stop saying stupid things like that. You love them, you like them. You care about them. You genuinely care who they are, where they came from, what they've experienced, what they thought. You know why? They bear the image of God. And if you love God, you have to love those who bear his image. Dignity for all. Everyone is a VIP who will sit at your table. Heavenly Father, speak. Speak to us, convict us, challenge us, call us to repentance, call us to confess our self-righteousness, call us to the place where we don't hide behind ideologies and hide behind parties and hide behind this or hide behind that, but God, call us to the place where we begin to seriously ask the question, what does it mean to be Christian? What does it mean to be like Jesus? Help us to think about people the way that Jesus thought about people to feel about people the way that Jesus felt about people. To see people the way that Jesus saw people. God, help us to get this right. God, this is where the conversation begins. Speak to us, Lord, in Jesus' name.